And the, the emotion of that drove me back to Matthew chapter 23 and verse 37. We're going to talk about the second half of the tribulation. We've been talking about the wrath that God pours out on his people, his chosen people. And I want you to hear Jesus' words. This is uh, before he would go to the cross. This is an important place before the Olivet Discourse, which discusses that whole week. And listen to what he says. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophet and stones those who are sent, sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is talking to his own people. He's talking as the Savior, as the King, as the Messiah. He is looking at Jerusalem, at Israel, and he knows their history. He, they, they weren't good. They weren't doing good things. They hadn't done them in the past, and they weren't doing them in the present, and quite frankly, today as well. Uh, the Apostle Paul uh, said in, uh, in Romans chapter 10, My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Uh, in chapter 9, he talks about trading places with them, uh, where he would give up his salvation for them. Great burden. Uh, Jesus had a great burden. And I think as we talk about prophecy, and particularly this wrath that's coming, there's no one in heaven going, oh, goody, goody, we're going to get him. It's, a, it, it's judgment. It's, it's righteous judgment. It's fair judgment. It's, uh, it's part of God's plan. But it's not fun. And I, I think that's something important as we, as we look. And then I, I want you to look in uh, Matthew chapter 24 and verse 14, because there it says, and the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. You know, the gospel of the kingdom, go back to the gospels and you remember that John the baptizer, uh, no Baptists, at this period of time. Uh, he was an immerser. He was the one preparing the way. And he said, in, in, in talking about that, he said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And, of course, Jesus was going to come physically and bodily and present himself for the ministry, and, of course, he's rejected. And now in this period of time, at the first week, as we've discussed the first part of this week where there were these seal judgments that were being broken one at a time by the only one who is qualified to do it. Uh, these are judgments that are going to pour out on the earth, the birth pangs of the Messiah. The, these things have consequences, and there's 
going to be a great deal of death and blood and wars and all kinds of things. But even in the midst of that, the gospel of the kingdom is going to be preached. And we're going to talk about the agents of who they are. Um, And we mentioned it briefly yesterday. But understand that the king, in this period of time, the king's going to be coming. Literally, the king's going to be coming. And he's going to be flying in the air, like we sang in some of those verses in the last song, coming down to the planet uh, with his saints with him. And it's going to be an incredible time, but God has, in the midst of that darkness, a witness. A witness. Um, In this period of time, there's only a minority of Jewish people who respond to the gospel. Only a minority, a remnant. God's in the remnant business. But not just amongst Jewish people, amongst Gentiles as well. We are a minority of people in the world. Believers are a minority. But God has his people. And no matter how black it might be, there's always a witness. And so there are 144,000 witnesses uh, who will be preaching the gospel. And we're going to look a little later and, and see their qualifications and what they're able to do. There's those two witnesses we talked about. There's actually another thing we didn't talk about because, quite frankly, I'm not sure where to put it. It'd be interesting because uh, we'll probably have that conversation before the end of the week. We have two Bible scholars here. The question of Ezekiel 38 and 39 is, when does this war take place? I personally believe it takes place in the 70th week. And if you were to pin me down, I probably would say more towards the beginning of the week. But there are so many people with different ideas as to when it is. But make no mistake, Ezekiel 38 and 39 is not Armageddon. It's a separate war. Uh, You could do a whole message on Ezekiel 38 and 39. And the lining up of the nations directly north of Israel, Russia, and all the nations around coming down where God puts a hook in their jaws and drives them down. That too is going to be part of this judgment that's going to be poured out. But in that particular war, the invisible God steps in and the enemy is defeated. So all these things are happening uh, during this week. And yesterday, we, the first half, we talked about false messiahs. And let me... We talked about false messiahs, uh, verse 5 of, of uh, Matthew chapter 24, corresponding to the first seal of Revelation chapter 6. We talked about wars and rumors of wars, which coordinated with the second seal, where peace is taken uh, from them. We talked about famine and pestilence and earthquakes in verse 7, which corresponds to the third seal. And the fourth seal of death by famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. And then uh, tribulation, the corresponding from verse 9 to the fifth seal where saints are killed. That's just the beginning. That's just the beginning of birth pangs. And we're talking about terrible, awful things. But there's more to come as these seals 
are broken. Chapter 24 and verse 21, Jesus says, For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. Great tribulation that Jesus speaks about. Uh, In verse 36, it says this, But that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven. Even with the timing of this period of time, it seems that this is something hidden as far as pinpointing the exact time that Christ will come. And even though we don't know that, we know several things that will happen during this period of time. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. We're going to go over some of these things. Revelation chapter 12. Starting in verse 7. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Now remember, the beginning of this period of time, God's wrath is poured out. That's the Lamb. He's the one who's breaking the seals. But now, in the, towards the middle of this period of time, Satan, whose chief goal is the accuser, uh, a la the book of Job, Satan goes up and down and he accuses the brethren. No longer will he be able to do that. He's being cast out. And if you notice in verse 12, he has great wrath. So the people on the earth... Notably, certainly the Jewish people are going to receive God's wrath and have been. But now the person that makes a covenant with them, signs a covenant, the Antichrist, uh, it, now the Satan is going to indwell him and he's going to unleash his wrath upon the people. Satan and his angels are cast out, uh, no longer accusing the saints. And now the earth is in big trouble. Look at verse 13. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. Now what's, what's that all about, giving birth to the male child? Well, that, that goes back to the beginning of chapter 12. And actually you can get some inside information if you go back to Genesis chapter 37. Uh, 
Jacob's son, Joseph, had a dream, and that dream is almost exactly the kind of description that we're getting here. In fact, let's just look back there in Genesis chapter 37 and verse 9, just to give you an idea of how this shapes up. Genesis chapter 37 and verse 9. Then he, that is Joseph, uh, he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I've dreamed another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. In Revelation chapter 12, we have a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, head of garland, and that being with child, she cried out in pain to give birth. The woman is Israel in chapter 12. And so when we come to this part, uh, we, we have this period of time in verse 13 where it says, The dragon that had been cast to the earth persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. So now Satan is going to pour out his wrath upon them. In Revelation chapter 11, if you'll go back there, there are two witnesses in Jerusalem. The two witnesses, I believe, happen in the beginning of the uh, first part of the week. They are preaching the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom. They are proclaiming him, and they're immune to any kind of judgment. The Antichrist can't do anything until God allows it to happen. And here in chapter 11 and verses 1 to 14, we find out that the two witnesses, in fact, are going to be killed. And if you look in verse 7, it says, When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will war against them, overcome them, and kill them. Their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt. Think about that. This is Jerusalem. This is in Israel. Things have gotten so horrible that it's called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. So these two witnesses are going to be killed. They had been empowered to prophesy for 42 months. They had great power, but Satan was allowed to overcome them, and he kills them. They rise again. Now, turn to Revelation 13. Okay. There we go. Revelation chapter 13, in verse 1 through 3. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw beasts rising out of the sea, having seven heads ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. 
as you're reading this in Revelation, assuming you've read the, all the previous books, most notably in this section, Daniel, then you'll understand that these are the past powers on the earth that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about and that Daniel dreamt about. And it says in verse 3, And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. Now here's an area where I'm, I, I'm still in a quandary. I, I've read lots of different things. Maybe some of you could help me. The question is, does the Antichrist die and rise again? The text seems to indicate that he does. I don't want to belittle the text in any way. I always want to be true to the text. If God wants to allow that in a sovereign will, he can do that. There are other people who believe that it's going to be like a con, that it's going to look like he died. But he's going to conquer that, overcome that, rise from the dead. Either way, the part I'm not sure of, is it real or not? But it doesn't matter in the context, at least as, as far as I can understand, because the idea is the people believe it. They believe he rises from the dead. They worship him. They are overcome by his greatness. And the text here in, in verse 3 indicates that. And so he receives a fatal wound. It's healed. The world marvels at his resurrection. Who's able to make war with him? They'll worship the Antichrist, everyone not written in the book of life. He'll speak great words of blasphemy in verses 6 and 7, and uh, authority over tribe, tongue, and nations for 42 months. The world is, in the midst of all this stuff, the world is going to marvel at him. How, I used to think long time ago, when I first began to read about prophecy and read this, this passage and this book, I wondered, how could people be so fooled? Have, did you ever wonder that? And what I'm about to say, I could get in big trouble. Uh, that's not new for me. So when, when President Obama was running for office, this isn't, has nothing to do with him per se, but the people who voted for him or who were interested in him. Do you remember the interviews that were given? It, it was amazing to me. I, it, certainly, if I was an African-American and President Obama was running, there'd have to be a bit of pride, the fact that he's running. Bernie Sanders is Jewish. Uh, I wouldn't vote for Bernie Sanders in a million years. But that a Jewish person could get that far... That's, that's pretty cool. I hope he loses. I, I don't want him anywhere near the White House. But I, I get it. But when, the inter, when people were interviewed during that time, they attributed to him, that is, candidate Obama, uh, more than he could ever deliver. It was almost Messiah-like. And that's what I want you to think. It was, it was blinders on both sides to the reality that was really happening. Folks, the delusion in this period of time is going to be, it's not even in the same ballpark as what took place in our country. It's going to be world 
why. And so all the great worship will go to him. And in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 15, the middle of the tribulation, so if you scoot back there in Matthew, the midpoint of this period of time is the abomination that causes desolation. And according to Revelation, the Antichrist is going to set an image in the Holy of Holies. Remember, he made a covenant with Israel. He's going to provide peace. He guarantees as a military uh, power that he has based on the wor- as a world power, he will guarantee their peace. And one of the reasons I believe Ezekiel 38 and 39 takes place early on is I believe that covenant or contract is um, challenged early on. And I believe that when God wipes out that army, Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, when he wipes out that army, the Antichrist, this great leader, will take the credit for it and rise to power. But now he breaks that covenant. He's going to turn his back on the people he signed that covenant on sets up an image in the Holy of Holies and demands people worship him. Look at chapter 13 and verse 11. Chapter 13 and verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all authority of the first beast. So this is a second beast that comes in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. To be killed. No worship, you'll be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave to receive the mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark of the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who understanding with understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man, 666. I have no idea what 666 means. I don't know if anybody now has any idea what 666 means. They've attached that name to to Hebrew letters, to English letters. They've identified them everywhere from Richard Milhouse Nixon to Henry Kissinger. All kinds of people have been uh, predicted to be the Antichrist. I think this is a a specific um, point or pointer to the people who lived during this period who will be able to figure it out then, not necessarily now. So, with all these things happening, I want you to look in in Revelation chapter 8 and 9. 
Because remember, the sixth, the seventh seal unleashes trumpets. Trumpets are going to sound. And it is this rapid trumpets and then bowls that are going to come in the second week. Uh, this is where judgment is being poured out on the whole earth. Jesus, uh, in the seventh seal, the prelude to the trumpet in chapter 8 and verses 1 through 6. The second trumpet uh, in, in uh, chapter in verse 8 and 9 of chapter 8, where one-third of the sea is turned to blood. Verse 7, one-third of the vegetation is turned to blood. The third trumpet in verse 10, wormwood. If you look uh, there in verse 10 and 11, it says, The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell a third of the rivers and in the springs of water. The name of the star is wormwood. Wormwood is a bitter plant that grows in Israel, uh, and it, it, it's horrible. And so this whole uh, idea of this probably asteroid which hits the earth is going to turn much of the water bitter. The fourth trumpet in verses 12 and 13, the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. And I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. The fifth trumpet in uh, chapter 9 and verses 1 through 12 is these incredible locusts that uh, come. The locusts in verse 3 come from the earth and they're given power. In verse 4 we're told they're commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any seal of God on their foreheads. In verse 5 they're not given authority to kill, but in verse 6 it says, In those days men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. These trumpets, one after another, are ripping the earth, destroying the ecosystem, blood, uh, no fresh water, and these locusts are coming, which are probably demon uh, angels who are given permission to torture to the point where people wish they were dead and it won't happen. In verses 13 to 21, we have a 200 million horsemen who are coming to across the Euphrates to attack. And in Revelation chapter 16, we have the seventh trumpet. And that seventh trumpet is going to unleash uh, the bowls that will come. Rapidly these happen. In chapter 16 and verses 1 and 2, then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. And the first bowl was loathsome sores. The second bowl, the sea that wasn't turned to blood, turns to blood. It becomes uh, every living creature dies. The third bowl, waters turn to blood. The fourth bowl, men are scorched with fire in verse 8. 
The fifth bowl is darkness and pain. Darkness so dark that it says in verse 10, they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. Incredible to think that as this wrath of God is being poured out, instead of driving people to God, they are moving further away. They curse the name of God. In verse, verse 12 of chapter 16, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. Its water was dried up so that it made the way for the kings of the east to be prepared. And unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and the false prophets... And they perform signs which go out to the kings of the earth and the whole earth to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. It is now coming to the point where God's wrath poured out on Israel to the point where they fled. They had to flee in the midpoint, according to Matthew. But here is the great gathering, the battle of what we call Armageddon. How many of you have been to Israel? Okay. Remember uh, when you went to uh, Armageddon and saw the valley of Jezreel? I don't, I don't know if you remember that. You're standing out in a valley. It's the breadbasket of Israel. And from Megiddo, you can look across that valley. And usually who's ever going to teach on that passage, uh, Revelation chapter 19, when he comes back, the battle, they're set to fight God. What a lot of people don't know, and I try to point it out whenever I'm there, is that across from that valley, you can see Nazareth. Nazareth. Nazareth is the place that Jesus was raised. And as a young boy, growing up, it is more than likely that Jesus on a cliff that we take our people on our trip, we take them on a cliff on the opposite side. It's really on the opposite side looking this way instead of being here looking this way. And there's a cliff that looks over Jezreel Valley. Now, when Jesus was a boy, he grew in wisdom and strength. I don't know how much he knew about the future at that time. But I do know that looking over that valley and being familiar with God's word, knowing there would be a great battle that takes place, Jewish people believe that, I wonder what was going on in his mind. I just know from my vantage point to think that that valley where he's going to return, where he's going to come and judge the world, is the same place that he got to oversee for a long period of time. In verses... Uh, 17 of chapter uh, of chapter 16 and verse 17 then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying it is done it is done what happens what happens here is revelation chapter 19 what happens here is zechariah 13:1 what happens here is Zechariah chapter 14. What happens here is Matthew chapter 24 towards the end. 
The skies are dark, blackness, and the Son of God returns. The Bible says in Zechariah's feet will touch down on the Mount of Olives. It tells us in Revelation chapter 19 there's fire in his eyes. It tells us that he's on a horse, and it tells us that the saints of God are with him. This is the culmination of this week, this week of judgment, this week where God's wrath is being poured out, this week where Satan's wrath had been poured out. This is the end where the Jewish people look upon him whom they've pierced and mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. Absalom, oh my son Absalom, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, finally, at this period of time, the nation of Israel, almost completely gone, one-third left, will look upon him whom they've pierced, and the program that God promised to them will see its beginning through the judgment that the King, the Messiah, the Savior, is going to bring. The Bible says his feet touch down on the Mount of Olives. We stand on the Mount of Olives uh, on our tours. And if you've been there, you've, you've stood there. You look towards the Eastern Gate. And what's fascinating about the Middle East, present, is that when you stand on the Mount of Olives, you're looking at gates, the eastern gate, which is bricked up. And there's a cemetery in front. So if you ask the guide, can you tell me what, why is that gate bricked up? It was, it was under Islam at the time of the building of that wall. And the cemetery is at that time. And the guides, every guide I've ever had, say the same thing. Oh, they read the last book in the Christian Bible. They read Zechariah in the Jewish Bible. And they bricked up the wall and they put a cemetery there to make that area unclean and unimpregnable so no one can come in. So... Think about this. Jesus Christ, seated next to the Father on high, is up there saying, what am I going to do? How am I going to do this? No. His feet will touch down on the Mount of Olives. When Jesus was, was resurrected, did doors stop him? He, he went right through doors. His feet will touch down on the Mount of Olives or walk down the Kidron Valley up through the eastern gate through that cemetery, which probably won't be there because of the earthquake that will take place, and he will be king. We sing about Jesus the king. And there's a certain sense, a real sense, that believers here now during this period of time, he's our king. There's no kingdom now, but he's our king. But then he will be king, seated on the throne. Whose throne? David's throne in fulfillment of all those prophecies. The story, the narrative that began in Genesis, that looked forward to the seed, that where a family, a 
a man, Abraham, is called, and his family turns out to 12 tribes of Israel who are special as they go into Egypt, come out a great nation, who are given the law of God, who are the ones who are to proclaim who he is, the ones who failed miserably, the ones who killed the prophets, the ones who killed Christ. But the promise given by God, based on his word, forgets all that because he's bound to his word and will fulfill it. What a day that's going to be. And you and I are going to be there with him. Tomorrow, Lord willing, we're going to talk about the kingdom, the earthly, literal, physical kingdom that will be on the earth and what that kingdom looks like. God who always keeps his word. He keeps his word to Israel. He keeps his word to us. We can bank on it. We can count on it. That gives me such a source of strength and hope uh, to live in the days in which we do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what a mighty God we serve. Lord, my people certainly have blown it on so many levels. We're a sinful people. We're a hard-hearted people. We wrote about sin. We teach people about sin. We're good at it as a people. Father, those who aren't Jewish are just as good as at just as good as it individually. There's no one righteous. No, not one. And that's why we praise you. Because in spite of that, you love us. You care for us. You're a promise-keeping God. You gave us the gospel, the good news. You give us the privilege of, of communicating that wherever we go to give people an opportunity to become part of the family of God. In spite of ourselves, we, we're able to do that. We come to a camp like this that has been a beacon for years and years, proclaiming the truth of an almighty God and his love for us. Jesus said, O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Father, thank you that we can say you're our heavenly Father. Thank you that we can receive the Lord Jesus, and thank you that we can say we love him only because he first loved us. Lord, thanks for this place. Thanks for all that you do. Thanks for your any moment snatching away of your church, and thanks in advance for sending the Lord Jesus to make things right here on planet Earth. And we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.